What's the time? It's time to get ill. What's the time? It's time to get ill. So what's the time? It's time to get ill. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Illiteracy Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Benson, a senior policy analyst at the Heartland Institute, a national free market think tank. And this is episode, I think we're in the 120s now. I can't remember, never can remember the episode numbers. But uh, point being, uh, not a new podcast anymore. But for those of you out there just tuning in for the first time, basically what we do here on the podcast is I have an author on to discuss a book of theirs that's been uh, newly published or recently published, you know, on something we think you guys would like to hear a conversation about. And then hopefully at the end of the podcast or, you know, even in the middle of the podcast, if you get your druthers about you, you go ahead and uh, purchase the book yourself and give it a read. So if you like this podcast, please consider giving Illiteracy a five-star review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. And also by sharing with your friends, as that's the best way to support programming like this. And my guest today is Dr. William Imboden, and Dr. Imboden is Executive Director of the Clement Center for National Security and Associate Professor of Public Policy and History at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. And before that, he served as Senior Director for Strategic Planning on the National Security Council and worked on the State Department's policy planning staff. He is also a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a contributing editor to the journal Foreign Policy. You might have seen his work in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Foreign Affairs, USA Today, and the Weekly Standard. Uh, Rest in peace. We miss you. Uh, (laughs) He is also the author of Religion and American Foreign Policy, 1945 to 1960, The Soul of Containment, and co-editor of The Last Card, Inside George W. Bush's Decision to Surge in Iraq, and co-editor of Handoff, excuse me. Uh, the foreign policy that George W. Bush bequeathed to Barack Obama. Lastly, he is the author of The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink, which was originally uh, published originally back in November by Dutton, was named one of the Wall Street Journal's best political books of 2022, and is the book we will be discussing today. So, Dr. Amberden, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tim. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I was uh, really looking forward to reading this because I am, uh, you know, 100% a Reagan guy. Um, Reagan's my dude. Uh, <laughs> I was born in 1982, so I can remember the the last, uh, you know, few years of the Reagan presidency somewhat, um, and I vividly remember his uh, address. Uh, convention address in 1992, the Republican convention address, and uh, you know, just uh, and if, from a family of uh, Reagan Reaganophiles, I guess you want to call them, and uh, you know, that's just uh, my background. You know, when that Call of Duty game came out uh, with uh, with uh, Reagan in it, with his likeness and everything, uh, I'm not a big video game guy, but I saw that and I was like, man, I want to go out and get a PS5 now and go and uh, <laughs> you know, go and go and kill commies for Ron, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, so I uh, uh, was really looking forward to this because there hasn't really been, at least not that I have seen, a book of this scope on Reagan's foreign policy in a long time. I remember I read uh, it was Jay Winnick wrote that book. Um, oh, what was the name of it? Uh, on the Brink. Um, yes. Yeah, that came out, but that came out like maybe. <clears throat> Like 25 years ago or something like that. That, was, that book came out in the in the 90s, I think. So I don't think there's really been a book like this of this magnitude since then, and in actually even bigger in scope because that book really just focused on uh, Reagan's uh, foreign policy toward the Soviet Union. But this book uh, covers any you know it's a it, Reagan's global foreign policy, not just towards the USSR, but you know, for Asia and Central and South America, the Middle East, Africa, etc. You know, not just Europe. So, uh, anyway, long-winded intro there. But um, uh, I guess first question. So, what made you what made you want to write this book? What was the uh, what was the genesis of it? Yeah, no, uh, thank you, Tim. It's a great question, and um, there were uh, several. The there wasn't a single aha moment about I want to write this book, but rather the project uh, that became the book came together o- over a few years. Um, part of it was uh, 
after I had left the National Security Council and, you know, my previous career as a foreign policymaker, uh, largely in Washington, a little bit overseas, um, and a lot of what I'd been working on as a policymaker had related to, you know, what we called at the time the war on terror, the 9-11 era. But I knew that um, Reagan and the Reagan administration still loomed really large in the recent history of American national security, and that his you know peaceful victory in the Cold War, uh, with the passing of time, just seemed to be more and more of a notable accomplishment. And so, I part of it was just I you know I think there's uh, something really unique there, and I'd love to delve into that a little bit more. And it you know originally when I first started researching it, my first research trip to the Reagan Library uh, was. Uh, in the fall of 2012, so you know, 11, almost 11 years ago now. Um, and I was originally thinking of this as just a, an article or a book chapter. Uh, but then, you know, over over the next couple of years, with some follow-on research trips, I realized ah, I think there's more here to turn this into a full-on book. Partly because, as you mentioned, um, even though there have been a number of fantastic books written on Reagan, uh, including the Jay Winnick one you mentioned on the brink, I'm looking at it right now on my bookshelf here. Um, <laughs> it was a great source for me. It's in my uh, office too, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. But um, at, you know, at the risk of immodesty, and readers can decide if they like this book or don't like it, but uh, I do think it's the first book of its kind in that, as you mentioned, it looks at every aspect of Reagan's foreign policy, not just the Cold War. Uh, but also what he was doing in Asia, what he was doing with counterterrorism, what he was doing with the with the Middle East um, and, and Africa. So, um, and then there's another reason I want to mention, uh, and this relates, you know, even to my current role as a professor here at the University of Texas, and you know, teaching the you know the current generation of college students and working with the next generation, um, is. For younger people these days, you know, the Cold War is ancient history, right? They were all born after the Cold War had, mm -hmm. had ended. Um, and uh, there's a growing uh, sense I've just, you know, picked up from younger people and even some older people who still remember the Cold War that the peaceful end of the Cold War was inevitable. Right, that, of right. course, the Soviet Union was going to collapse. Of course, a bizarre, uh, you know, totalitarian government and command economy like that couldn't couldn't continue. And of course, the world was never going to be destroyed in a nuclear war. That's crazy. How could anything like that happen? And and I, you know, I'm a little older than you. I was born in 1972, so I have you know very vivid memories as a as a, as a kid and even into junior high and high school of, of the Cold War, and it was terrifying. I mean, we, you know, no one knew for sure if any day was going to be our, our last day uh, on on planet Earth. Uh, yeah, and, my my grade school was a. Uh, Bomb shelter, you know. Remember yeah, the old yeah. signs with the the radioactive thing? Yeah, yeah. the polar shelter mm -hmm. was black. Yeah, the yellow, yellow arrows and the yeah, yeah. I know. So it was. Um, and, and so I, 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 this growing sense among you know as years go by that uh, you know of course the Soviet Union would collapse and the peaceful end of the Cold War is inevitable. Uh, I don't think that was the case at all. And partly why I wanted to write this book, and especially why I write it as a narrative, is I want to show readers that I think um, President Reagan's policies made a decisive difference, that um, it was not inevitable that the Soviet Union was was going to collapse and that the Cold War would end peacefully and nuclear war would be avoided and, and freedom would spread. Uh, but rather that was in, you know, I think significant part from the very visionary and innovative and courageous and let's be honest, controversial policies that President Reagan uh, followed and implemented. And, and so I wanted to write a book that reminds us of uh, the role of leadership in history, um, the role of leadership in changing the course of how history might might play out uh, and how I think he, he really made a decisive difference. Yeah, you write in the book, he envisioned how the Cold War would end, you know, maybe not timetable-wise, but how it would end over, you know, over a quarter of a century before it actually did, and um, it, and as you said, people sort of assume that the Cold War ending was just sort of this inevitable thing that was going to happen, but uh, you know, most people at the time uh, were not expecting <laughs> the collapse of the Soviet Union to come that quickly. Or to happen that fast, and um, and or or to expect it to collapse. Period. Uh, yeah. Even when uh, things weren't looking so great for the Soviet Union in the in the you know the later half of the 80s, 
but um, as you read, uh, you know, this is Reagan could, could sort of see this. Um, not to say he's like a, a, a Nostradamus or anything like that, but uh, you know, uh, he had a vision of how this was going to play out, or and a belief in how it was going to play out, and for the most part, um, he was right, and uh, most other people in the in the world of uh, political opinion and in uh, foreign policy in the State Department uh, were not correct <laughs> while he yeah. was. Yeah. And, and your last point there is, is really important. And this goes back to you know what I was saying earlier about why I, I wrote the book and, um, you know, disabusing us of this inevitability fa- fallacy, this sense that, of course, it was just inevitable that's going to collapse because people did not see that at the time. And, you know, in the 1980s, uh, in particular, most, quote, foreign policy expert opinion, most Sovietologists, you know, people who are, ex, you know, academic and policy mm-hmm. experts in the Soviet Union, thought Reagan was nuts for right, yeah. trying to bring it to collapse, right? And and I document this at length in the book, uh, whether it's, you know, outside scholars or even, you know, analysts at the Soviet analysts of the CIA who studied this for a living uh, thought the Soviet Union was pretty durable and resilient and strong and had been around for 70 years and was going to be around for at least another century. And so this, you know, new American president pushing these more confrontational policies to try to bring that system to collapse. They just thought that was crazy and dangerous. And he was ferociously criticized at at, at the time. And yet with his convictions that, um, you know, a, a victorious end of the Cold War was possible, uh, we now know in hindsight, I think that he was largely correct. I'm trying to make that case in the book, but we also need to remember uh, very few people saw that at the time, and mm-hmm. it, it seemed almost impossible. Um, and that's it, it again goes back to what I was saying about makes him all the more notable as a strategic visionary and as a courageous leader. Yeah, yeah. And Reagan saw the Cold War, and this is something that differentiated him from again the sort of the foreign policy establishment the the mandarins of the state department everything uh and in uh and in congress and presidential administrations before him uh reagan saw the cold war primarily uh as a battle of ideas an ideological struggle not a great power conflict i mean of course it was a great power conflict but but the important part of that great power conflict was the ideological battle that overlaid that. And that is something that um, was really unique to him as well. Yes. Yeah, this is a really important point. I appreciate you bringing it up. And as you know from reading the book, this is a uh, an argument I try to develop at length in the book. But to uh, summarize it for our listeners here uh, – Every previous American Cold War president, from Harry Truman at the beginning of the Cold War on up through Jimmy Carter, you know, Reagan's immediate predecessor, Democrats and Republicans, they had all primarily conceived of the Cold War as this great power competition that happens to be a battle of ideas. So that meant, you know, great power competition is a you know term of art, essentially meaning you've got two large, powerful countries with big economies and strong militaries, in this case, the United States and Soviet Union, who are in a competition with each other, you know, are, are jockeying for influence and control in the world. Um, and that's how most American presidents had seen it. But they knew uh, there's also a difference. The United States is a democracy. Soviet Union is a dictatorship. We have a more of a market economy. They have uh, they have a command, uh, command economy. And so they you know, they knew that there was some sort of uh, ideological dimension, but they that was secondary. Reagan reverses that, uh, and he sees the Cold War as primarily this battle of ideas. It is primarily a standoff between the free world and the communist world that just also happens to be a great power competition. Uh, and this is not just a semantic distinction. Uh, it, from Reagan reversing that and priv- you know seeing the Cold War as primarily a bot- battle of ideas, uh, so for previous presidents, they saw the Soviet Union as a, a rival power to be contained and managed. And Reagan instead says Soviet communism is a vile idea to be defeated. Uh, and you can see that's, that's a very, diff- very, di- very different approach. Mm-hmm. And that's why, as I you know, mentioned in the introduction of the book, he, you know, his, his summary of the Cold War, his theory of the case in the Cold War is we win, they lose. Right, yeah. and, and, you know, that's got a nice you know, rhetorical punch and simplicity, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. but but there's there's a pretty 
sophisticated strategic argument there that no one else believed in at the time that he was making, which that it's possible for the United States and the free world to win this battle of ideas. And it's possible to defeat the Soviet Union because at its core, it is this vile, wicked idea of totalitarian governance and no private property rights and state enforced atheism and oppression of any anyone who dissents from that. Uh, so uh, that's key to understanding what Reagan was trying to do. Yeah, because when he's saying we win, they lose, he's not, I mean, uh, you know, on the surface, it's we, the United States, defeat the Soviet Union. But the subtext of we win, they lose is we, uh, you know, the, the free market, um, uh, you know, the freedom-loving West, uh, democratic West, will defeat... Uh, Marxism, Leninism. Yes, that's essentially exactly. what he's meaning. Right. Yeah, uh, and that's why part of his strategy was to, in you know, enlarge the contours of the free world. It wasn't just let's show that communism was bad, although that was very much a part of it, but also let's show that market democracies are good. And this is why he's very committed to you know promoting. Uh, democracy and human freedom and promoting uh, free markets and free enterprise and why he builds some strong uh, you know, partnerships with fellow minded allied leaders such as you know, Margaret Thatcher, of course, in, in the United Kingdom uh, or Prime Minister Nakasone in, in Japan is mm -hmm. they see Reagan as the leader of the free world. And that phrase, the free world, it really meant something to them. Right. Um, and that was something that they, that they wanted to to protect and, and promote. Uh, and that's and, and again, the Soviet Union, uh, Soviet communism was the biggest obstacle to that, not just the Soviet Union itself, but the fact that the Soviet Union was trying to promote communism around the world. Sure. So they also, you know, the Kremlin also saw this as a battle of ideas. Yeah. Oh, uh, before I forget the title, The Peacemaker, what made you um, decide on the title? I know it comes up a lot in the book, uh, the term. Um, and. <laughs> yeah. And in the, uh, the, the you know the caricature of Reagan that is still uh, being trotted around by uh, many on the left of you know uh, sort of the the <laughs> the trigger happy cowboy uh, you know dunce actor yeah, or war monger than war monger yeah 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 that sort of thing so what made you decide on that title the peacemaker. Yeah, it was um, it was a title that came to me uh, after I'd already been working on the book for a couple of years. So well, it wasn't there at, at the beginning. But this is why I enjoy the process of, you know, careful research and mm -hmm. like diving deeply into it, into a subject. And that uh, it was a, a few things. Part of it was uh, a key to understanding Reagan's um, defense policy is peace through strength. You know, that was a mantra that he would often uh uh, often recite and we often focus on the strength part and he very much meant the strength right that's why he does a big military buildup and why he wanted mm -hmm. to restore the strength of the american economy but the peace part he meant also i mean reagan was committed to keeping the cold war cold he did not yeah. want it to turn into a hot war and destroy the world in a, in a nuclear exchange or even have a terribly bloody conventional war with, you know, Soviet uh, tanks rolling across Western Europe, the United States having to fight there. You know, as Reagan would often say, we fought two wars in Europe in my lifetime, referring to World Wars One and Two, and we don't want a third. You know, he knew how destructive those were. So he really was uh, committed to peace, but he was committed to peace on terms favorable to the United States and the free world. That's why it's peace through strength, not peace through surrender. Uh, mm -hmm. And then peacemaker itself, that word, uh, it just kept coming up over and over. Reagan would, um, in speeches, say that he aspired to be a peacemaker. Uh, uh, when Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, the Soviet leader, first comes to power, Gorbachev's staff write him a, a memo evaluating Reagan, telling Gorbachev, this, you know, this American president is going to be, you know, the most important world leader you deal with, and he seems to want to be a peacemaker. And then at Reagan's memorial, after he dies in, in June of 2004, and his body is lying in state there uh, in the capital, the rotunda of the U.S. Capitol, Gorbachev pays a surprise visit to pay tribute to him. And Gorbachev says, this was a great peacemaker. Uh, mm -hmm. So so that, 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 that word just kept coming up over and over. Of course, it you know, originally comes from you know, Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount saying, blessed are the peacemakers. Sure. And um, uh, so I thought, all right, this is... Uh, there, there's enough there that I think this might make a good good title for the book. And, it, you know, I don't mean, you know, 
you know, some people have criticized me saying I'm, I'm being ironic or provocative with it. No, not at all. I mean, it, it's a it's genuinely what Reagan aspired to be. Right. Uh, he really did want to be a peacemaker, but, you know, yeah, he saw and, you know, peace as expanding freedom in the world. Right. Yeah. And his um, thing, I, I think people really still don't understand about him, uh, his visceral uh, hatred of and and fear of nuclear weapons and the possibility of nuclear war and the sort of the stupidity of mutually assured destruction and you know the idea that humanity was is going to have to live forever forward with uh you know countries with with basically guns pointed at their temples the entire time yes this is a, a again a really important point i appreciate you bringing it up and another key to understanding reagan and this is why he's you know the more you look at him the more complicated and fascinating he is as a as a president and as a human being he had a <clears throat> going back to the 1940s when the united states had first dropped the atomic bombs in hiroshima and nagasaki reagan had a real you know, fear and loathing, we might say, of nuclear weapons. Uh, he he believed during the Cold War that they are essential to defending America, deterring a Soviet attack. And so that's why when he first becomes president, he is committed to modernizing and expanding the American nuclear arsenal. That very much needs to be said. So he does not believe in unilateral disarmament by any means. Mm-hmm. But his ultimate goal was to see all nuclear weapons abolished. Uh, and so, you know, I, my shorthand summary for his strategy with with nuclear weapons was build up to build down. Right. You know, he first wanted to build up the arsenal to deter the, the Soviets and let them know you're not going to be able to win a nuclear war. So don't even bother starting one. But then his next step is what can we do to get beyond this threat of nuclear war uh, and eventually you know, get rid of all these horrible weapons from the face of the earth precisely because they it's the first time in human history we had developed a weapon that could, you know, exterminate, extinguish the entire human race. And, you know, Reagan just thought that was appalling. I think he was he was right. Uh, It was madness. And that, as you mentioned, was the acronym for what our strategic doctrine was at the time, mutual Mm -hmm. assured destruction, this balance of terror, this sense that the only way um that we can prevent a Soviet attack as, of course, we threaten to retaliate them and since both uh, retaliate against them. And since both sides are committed to that uh, mutual retaliation and destroying each other's uh, uh, populations and the, the entire planet, therefore, we won't do it. But Reagan just thought that that was n- nuts. And so that's why he uh, you know, develops the strategic defense initiative, his plan for a missile shield mm-hmm. to you know, make these weapons obsolete, and why he pushes Gorbachev, especially in the last couple of years, saying, hey, let's see if we can come up with a deal to get rid of all these nuclear weapons. But for Reagan, getting rid of nuclear weapons also had to go in tandem with getting rid of Soviet communism. Right? Right, so right. He's, um, so he, was pursuing, he was pursuing both goals. Yeah, and uh, for bringing up SDI, just, um, you know, uh, for as much as it was derided as the time is, um, you know, fantasy and, you know, no way is it technologically possible, might not be ever technologically, technologically possible to create this sort of missile seal, miss, excuse me, missile shield and system that can, you know, with 100% accuracy, you know, knock down any, uh, any incoming missile, nuclear uh, missile coming at the United States or wherever. Um, it really, uh, there was a reason he was so attached to it. And um, one, again, because of, of, of his view of the folly of, of, of MAD. Um, but also, I mean, it had <laughs> a enormous strategic value in, uh, in dealing with the Soviets in uh, trying to bring about uh, to getting them to reduce uh, their weapon stockpiles, to remove um, certain uh, certain types of missiles from from Europe, for example, and um, it, uh, you know it, it was always I mean it's still people sort of, still sort of poo poo SDI, but uh, it really did the trick. Yeah, it it really did. And this was another uh, revelation that, um, you know, surprised me in my research uh, was just how important SDI was to Reagan's strategy overall. And frankly, how much it terrified the Kremlin. Right. Uh, No one took it seriously in America. Everybody took it seriously in the Soviet Union. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You gave a great a great summary there, which is um, as I you know uh, go into more detail in the book. When Reagan first proposes this idea of this, you know, using American technology to build this 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 missile shield to protect us from you know nuclear attack by the Soviets, uh, yeah, he's widely ridiculed. Uh, you know, Senator Ted Kennedy, the liberal Democrat from Massachusetts, goes on the Senate floor and calls it Star Wars. You know, referring to obviously the the popular science right. fiction, which is what with, basically everyone called it after that. Well, yeah, which, but, yeah, and the, it was an effective marketing on Kennedy's part, right? The the label label sticks, and he didn't mean it as a compliment. He, no, he but he made it. But he made it sound cooler. You know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. So all right, okay, all right. So if if Luke Skywalker's for this, uh, and, like, and so it's like, hey, it's, yeah, you know, hey, Reagan wants Star Wars. It's like, well, all right, hell yeah, that sounds cool. You know. Right. Okay, yeah. So let's take out that Death Star. Right, right. Uh, but <laughs> but what um. But even, you know, a number of people in Reagan's own government weren't sure that this could work. You know, most uh, scientists at the time would issue public letters and statements saying this isn't going to work. But Reagan had more self-awareness than people appreciated. He himself said, look, I don't know if this system could actually work or not. And even if it does, it's going to take, you know, at least, you know, 20 years or so till the end of the century, he says, to even, you know, become operational. But this is where he's a real visionary. But he says, but why don't we at least try? Right. Uh, you know, American technology and innovation and entrepreneurship have been so successful in helping, uh, you know, solve previous problems and lead the world in um, uh, in all sorts of really helpful new technologies. And given the stakes here, given that we are quite literally talking about the fate of the human race and the possibility of the whole world being destroyed in a you know, mushroom cloud, a nuclear apocalypse. Why don't we at least try to to develop a system that could you know protect us from that and move move us beyond that and get beyond the this lunacy of the balance of terror and threatening to annihilate each other's populations and um, uh, and so that's why he was so committed to SDI it was that broader it was that broader vision it was not uh, naivete or simplicity on his mm -hmm. part of thinking it could be deployed the next year and as I you know point out in the book even though most expert opinion certainly in the U S didn't think it could work. Um, in some ways, the one person who mattered most did think it could work, and that was Mikhail Gorbachev, right, the Soviet right. leader. Uh, and because Gorbachev is also fascinated by American technology from afar, he's very jealous of it because he knows that the Soviet Union just can't keep pace with the United States uh, in innovation and in you know uh, in and in technological development. And Gorbachev is kind of convinced. I think those Americans might be able to pull this thing off, and if so. It would neutralize, you know, one of the few remaining strengths and advantages the Soviet Union had, which is at the time they did have a larger uh, ICBM force in the United States. They did have you know, more and more powerful and more um, uh, more accurate uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles. And Gorbachev knew if this Reagan guy can pull off this SDI thing, uh, that uh, counters or eliminates the final advantage we the Soviets have, and it'll it'll really make us look weak. And so he was desperate to stop it. Mm -hmm. And of course, when Reagan saw Gorbachev's desperation to stop SDI, that clued Reagan in. All right, this right. is a Trump card here. This is something strong I'm going to hold on to because it's really spooked the Soviets. Absolutely. And the other thing, too, uh, just going back uh, to him as a peacemaker, um, when he's talking about SDI, <laughs> you know, it's not like Reagan saying, you know, we're going to we're going to build SDI and then we're going to. We're going to have our, you know, kick-ass laser shield and the rest of you guys out there can, you know, just go suck eggs. Um, he He's like, look, he goes to Gorbachev, he says, we we will give you, like, we will we will develop SDI with you. We will, we will share this technology with you and the rest of the world to make these weapons obsolete. And, uh, I mean, he's like, we will give it away to you for, for you know, we, we will give you this, <laughs> this, uh, this this massive military advantage we have and let you partake in it and um that's really uh in terms of world history of um of leaders just, just like willfully agreeing to give away the uh their countries uh, what would be their most important strategic <laughs> advantage over a rival power I, that might be unprecedented in world history, you know. Oh yeah, that totally offer? radical. I, 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 if if it ever had occurred before in world history, I'm not aware of it. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's, it's completely unprecedented. And again, this this is where Reagan is just, you know, the further removed we are from his presidency, the more unique he appears, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, 
but he was utterly sincere with that. I mean, he um, he he wanted to spare the world the the horrors or the risks of nuclear war. Uh, he wanted to, uh, you know, reduce Soviet paranoia that the United States was intending to do a nuclear first strike on them. That's Gorbachev's big fear is that if the U.S. builds this missile shield, the U.S. would then be capable of launching a first strike on the Soviets and the Soviets couldn't retaliate because we'd have the shield to shoot them down. And and Reagan you know, was telling Gorbachev, look. You know, while we hate your, your your evil communist system, we don't hate the Russian people. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't want to destroy, you know, you kill, massacre your people and, and destroy the whole world. Uh, and to show you how sincere I am in that, hey, we'll share this technology with you so you can defend yourselves against nuclear missiles, too. Um, and even says, look, even if the U.S. and Soviets give up our, our missiles, uh, our nuclear weapons, what if a, a rogue state, what if a mad dictator, Reagan cites, you know, Gaddafi in Libya at the time, uh, or, you know, he could also have cited you know, the Ayatollahs in, in, in Iran or something. Mm-hmm. What if one of them gets um, gets a nuclear uh, missile? You know, we want to protect ourselves from from that, too. And so it's a it's a broader humanitarian vision Reagan has of, you know, protecting innocent peoples from uh, from nucle- nuclear destruction. But again, it's also a reminder of just what a you know really unique and visionary leader he was that uh, he kind of wrongfoots Gorbachev in that way. He said, hey, fine, I'll call your bluff. We'll share it with you. And Gorbachev doesn't know what to do with that. It just right. baffles him. Yeah, yeah. Um, backtracking a little bit uh, on the uh, – going back to the inevitability uh, of the end of the Cold War, the, you know, what, what people think about it now. Um, if, if you could just talk a little bit about uh, what the landscape looked like domestically and internationally – in January 1981, when Reagan takes office as president. Yes, this is uh, uh, again. I, you're asking some great questions here. I really appreciate you bringing this point out because uh, it is essential for appreciating the Reagan presidency overall. He inherited a really weak, difficult hand in January of 1981, um, and this makes I think the economic and foreign policy successes that he achieved all the more remarkable because they certainly did not appear foreordained. I mean, I'll just rattle off a you know a quick summary of how how difficult it was. Uh, you, you know, domestically, the United States was very divided and weakened and demoralized. You know, we were just a few years removed from the scandal of Watergate and lost uh, trust in governments and our first um, uh, mili- the first lost war in our country's history with, with Viet- Vietnam. Uh, our economy is a mess. It had been multiple years of recession of this perverse phenomenon of stagflation of, uh, you know, high inflation and high unemployment. Uh, and, uh, you know, no one had been able to figure, figure out a way for the United States out of, out of that yet. Um, we had much lower domestic energy production, oil and gas production at the time, which meant that when the OPEC cartel had launched, um, had done its um, its boycott, its embargo on the United States and stopped selling oil and gas to us, you know, the, mile, the, the lines at gas stations were miles long of Americans. We couldn't even fill up our, you know, the tanks of our cars, right, let alone fuel, fuel our economy. Uh, and then internationally, uh, if you were to, you know, tally the scorecard or look at the scoreboard in the Cold War, it would look like the Soviets were winning or certainly way ahead. You know, they were at the apex of their military might um, of the previous decade. Multiple countries, I'll just rattle off a few, had fallen to communism around the world. So South Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, uh, Mozambique, Angola, Ethiopia, South Yemen, Nicaragua, Grenada, Afghanistan, when the Soviets had invaded. Uh, so on every continent, it looks like communism is advancing and the free world is is in retreat. Uh, and so... Uh, and the American military itself was still really underfunded and demoralized uh, and uh, and had lost our deterrent edge towards the Soviets. And so Reagan inherited a terribly difficult hand. It's a huge challenge he faces to try to get the economy going again, to restore the country's faith in itself and to uh, regain the initiative in the Cold War, let alone bring it to a peaceful victory. Yeah, like so. If you would have told somebody on January twentieth, nineteen eighty-one, or whenever inauguration day was, that uh, within the decade, before the decade is out, the Berlin Wall <laughs> will have fallen, uh, the Warsaw Pact will have broken up, and and in a decade, uh, you know, basically little over a, a decade, December, Christmas Day of nineteen ninety-one, 
the Soviet Union will be no more, um, everyone, you know, would have thought you were friggin' nuts. Oh yeah, they would have thought you were you were insane. I yeah. mean, it would be the equivalent of you know predicting today here in you know 2023 that 10 years from now uh, the communist regime, communist Chinese Communist Party would have ceased to exist. China will be a you know free market democracy. Uh, the the uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Government in Iran would have ceased to exist. Uh, North Korea would have collapsed and been reunited with South Korea. I mean, think of all those uh, all, all those things happening. It, it seems inconceivable now, mm-hmm. but it was even more so in in, in Reagan's day. Uh, and yet he did envision uh, those those transformations and then worked to to help bring them about. Yeah. Oh, um, also before I get because it just came just popped into my head. Um, because I, I reading this, I was really interested in this. Um, uh, his relationship with uh, Eisenhower, Reagan's mm-hmm. relationship with Eisenhower, and Eisenhower sort of acting as a, a foreign policy mentor uh, to Reagan when he, because you know he kind of half-assed runs for president in 1968. Mm-hmm. And Eisenhower doesn't uh, pass away until 1969 or 1970, I think, something like that. Um, but uh, Eisenhower was very impressed with Reagan, you know, right from the time, the the, uh, the time for choosing speech for Goldwater in 64. So um, how important was Eisenhower to um, sort of Reagan formulating uh, what he would want to do? What, and what he would try to do once he became president. Yeah, it's a very interesting relationship. I, uh, if I'd had more time and space in the book, I would have done more material on this because it is it is really really important. Um, uh, so, just a brief summary for our listeners. Uh, Reagan's political debut on the national stage is in the fall of 1964 when he is supporting Barry Goldwater's you know conservative insurgency uh, candidacy um, running for president. And Reagan gives this really iconic speech called A Time for Choosing, uh, you know, 30 minutes, one of the most important political speeches in American history. You can it's still easy to find it on YouTube. Um, well, President, former President Eisenhower was you know, retired at the time, four years removed from the presidency and was spending his winters in Palm Springs, California, uh, where, of course, you know, Reagan's a resident. Um, uh, in California. And so Eisenhower had never met Reagan before, but he reaches out to him and, and after the speech says, hey, that was a really impressive speech. I think you've got some real talent. Um, let's get to know each other. And so that starts this, uh, you know, kind of four or five year relationship where Eisenhower, you know, Reagan comes to visit with Eisenhower. They play some golf together. They have lunch. And Eisenhower encourages Reagan first to run for governor of California, which Reagan does and, and wins in 66. And then Eisenhower immediately starts encouraging him, saying, you really got to run for president. I mean, you you are what this, this country needs. Uh, and Eisenhower also spends a lot of time talking to Reagan about Eisenhower's national security lessons from both being, you know, leading the allied forces in Europe in World War II and then being a successful two-term president. And he impresses on Reagan the importance of maintaining a strong domestic economy, because without that, you can't fund the military, you can't exercise influence in the world, um, you can't keep um, uh, American taxpayers supportive of, uh, of a strong posture in the world. And also Eisenhower is very clear with Reagan about uh, we need a strong military, but we need to be very careful and prudent about how we use it. And let's not get into uh, dumb, costly losing war efforts uh, with extended ground troop commitments, as was the case in, in Vietnam at the time. And that also it really impresses Reagan on uh, you know, how best to use and how best to avoid misusing the, the military. Uh, now, eventually, Reagan charts some of his own course. He's even, I think, more visionary than Eisenhower in believing in, you know, the Cold War as a battle of ideas and being able to defeat Soviet communism. But um, once Reagan becomes president, he he puts a bust of Eisenhower in the Oval Office. He puts a portrait of him up. He, he really sees Eisenhower as uh, certainly in part an inspiration for for what he's what he's trying to do. Yeah, and speaking of the time for choosing speech, um, the importance of rhetoric and speech making in in Reagan's uh, foreign policy playbook. I mean, he's probably. I mean, I guess maybe someone could argue Barack Obama uh, was that, but Ar- Reagan's arguably our, our really last great um, 
speech-making president. I mean, uh, to the point where uh, people, like, there are shorthand for his addresses and people know them uh, just by, you know, uh, the new the Evil Empire speech or the... Yeah. You know, the Berlin Wall speech, or the uh, the, uh, the Point to Hawk speech, or the, the the Westminster speech with the you know leaving uh, communism on the ash heap of history, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, how his his use of rhetoric in that way uh, was another um, sort of arrow in his quiver, and how he used it to um, uh, set the tone and sort of uh, put himself give himself an advantage over um you know his soviet adversaries yes uh and this was uh, again i know i keep saying this but another revelation in my research uh is just how deeply involved reagan was in the crafting of his own major speeches you know he, he would write a lot of them uh, or significant portions of them himself and how how important he saw that in his overall presidency and and cold war strategy uh again even people who know nothing else about him as you mentioned are like oh yeah he's the guy who said evil empire right or he's the guy who said said tear down this wall uh, excuse me got a little catch in my throat i'm just coughing it out but you can edit yeah, no this problem. out and so but when you look more closely at reagan's speeches um what you really see is he's trying to accomplish multiple things with them one he is uh communicating to the american people what his theory of the case in the Cold War is, you know, trying to explain to the American people, I know I'm taking us on a new strategy here, but let me explain to you why I'm doing it. It's because I believe in the the wickedness and the vulnerability of communism and uh, that if we have this combination of American strength and American diplomatic outreach, you know, I think that we can actually bring this conflict to a peaceful and victorious end. You know, I'm summarizing there, but, but a large part of his speeches are he takes the, uh, the role of, uh, an informed citizenry, uh, you know, the role of deliberative democracy really mm-hmm. seriously uh, of, of self-government. Um, but the other part is he's mindful of his audiences um, behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union himself. And he wants to send a message to those communist leaders. Hey, I've got your number. I know the depravity and wickedness and hypocrisy of your system, and I'm going to call it out. And then he wants to tell the people living under communism Hey, I'm on your side, and the United States is on your side, and we know that you you did not choose to live under these oppressive governments, and many of you are trying to resist it, and you have you have friends in the United States who share your aspirations for freedom and for a better life, and so you can read his most iconic foreign policy speeches, uh, you know Westminster in '82, Evil Empire in '83, Boys of Point to Hawk in '84. Uh, tear down this wall in 87, Moscow State in 88. I'm rattling off a bunch here. You can, if you read them in sequence, you see a very sustained and sophisticated argument he's making uh, against the legitimacy of communism, showing, uh, again, its, its depravity, its vulnerability, and for the virtues of the free world and for the advantages of democracy and, and market economies. And, and that gives... Certainly me and I hope readers a lot more appreciation that when he comes to that punchy phrase, you know, the evil empire, tear down this wall, Marxism, Leninism will be left on the ash heap of history. Yes, that's a punchy phrase and we are right to remember those, but they are embedded uh, in the context of a much more sophisticated argument uh, mm-hmm. that he's that he's communicating to multiple audiences. Yeah. And again, it was no president. Uh spoke of the soviet union that way i mean the the soviets obviously every friggin' soviet premier would you know vent his spleen about, about the united states and you know uh call the united states everything but a child of god um but you know american presidents were just a very more um uh what's the word i'm looking for here very more restrained in their um rhetoric and not to say yeah. that reagan was like a loose cannon but it was nice i mean nice to finally hear i mean i'm I, I don't remember this but i'm assuming it must have been nice to finally hear someone say at the time what you know everyone really knew about the soviet union uh you know calling it evil um which it was and and you know uh, 
<laughs> basically saying we are going to bury, you know, uh, not smacking a shoe on the podium or anything like that, but you know, we are going to bury uh, Marxism. Um, uh, that must have just been so great. <laughs> just the... Yeah, no, you're, you're you're exactly right. I mean, Reagan is the first American president in history to publicly uh, question the legitimacy of Soviet communism. Yeah. You know, other presidents, you know, we don't like what the Soviets are doing outside. We wish they weren't being aggressive. You know, we wish they'd, you know, reduce their nuclear arms, you know, things like that. But Reagan's the first one to directly challenge the the nature and identity of the system itself. And yeah. it's Oh, I just want to say, um, yeah. and for the people living behind the Iron Curtain, for the people uh, living under Soviet, uh, you know, in uh, Soviet, in the Soviet Union itself, who were not fans of communism, or um, or were some kind of dissident, or um, being persecuted for uh, the religious belief or something, um, you can, I mean, you get, you get why they loved Reagan so much. And like it, it makes sense why, you know, there's a statue of him now in basically every, you know, every capital city in in the in the old Warsaw Pact, uh, you know, yeah. in Eastern Europe, um, that they, uh, you know, uh, the uh, what that meant to them uh, to have somebody, you know say to the soviet's face uh, what you know they had been living with you know all this time under the under, under the 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 russian boot yeah uh, there's even that vignette i share in the book of natan natan sharansky uh, one of the most eminent soviet dissidents at the time he spent about eight years imprisoned for his uh you know political activism against soviet communism uh but also he was a, a jewish leader and was leader of the refuseniks who wanted the freedom to emigrate to, to to israel um and sharansky tells that when he was there in his prison cell in his soviet prison cell um of course they're not getting regular news but every month or so the guards would give them a copy of pravda the soviet newspaper which is you know pure propaganda mm -hmm. but Pravda would often have, uh, you know, articles detailing what Reagan had recently said and then would be denouncing Reagan. But um, when one of the guards gave Sharansky a copy of Pravda reporting that awful American president has called uh, us an evil empire, Sharansky says he was overjoyed. And he yeah. then used like, you know, the, the prison version of Morse code to tap out messages to his fellow prisoners in other cells saying what the American president had done. And he says, Shouts of joy erupt throughout the prison because we're all thinking, finally, an American president has told the truth about this evil system that we live under. And mm -hmm. finally, we have hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really incredible. Um, but all right. Let's um, – we've been um, talking about the good stuff about Reagan. But there's um, not all good stuff with, the, uh, with his administration. And um, – you write in the book, if there was a failure of his presidency, it was Reagan's failure as an effective manager and the problems he had uh, dealing with his uh, staff and his cabinet. And uh, this is going to lead um, Reagan's uh, ineffectiveness as a uh, manager, really, is going to lead to the lowest point in his presidency, which is the uh, Iran-Contra scandal, which uh, <laughs> which you said in the book was the only presidential scandal in history motivated solely by policy goals. And I was like, man, is that right? And I thought about it, and I was like, yeah, that probably is right. So uh, talk a little bit about uh, that downside of Reagan. And also, um, you know, this gets bandied about around by people on the left. Should he have been... Uh, was there a, a case for impeachment uh, against Reagan for Iran-Contra? Yeah. So thank you for bringing this up because it is an important qualification that, you know, as, as listeners, I'm sure have picked up by now, my book is overall a very favorable assessment of Reagan. And I think he deserves it. Right. So, yeah. you know, you can decide for yourselves. But, but I mean, it's but, not it's not hagiography. It's not, uh, you know, it's exactly. not it's, it's not, not a, it's not a right wrong. wing, um, you know, like uh, that kind of red meaty sort of. Uh, defense of Reagan or or history of Reagan, it's a it's a very fair and uh, impartial 
uh, yeah, look I, at his. I, I hope so. And I, you know, look, I'm first and foremost as a scholar and historian, I'm committed to trying to write objective, balanced, accurate history. And that means, you know, telling the full truth of what you, what you discover. Um, and, and in this case, you know, I do try to be very, uh, you know, clear in the book about uh, some of Reagan's liabilities, you know, some of his policy failings, uh, and we'll come back to Ron Contra in a second, but also just some of his personal failings as president. One of those is he was a lousy, lousy manager. Um, he did not pay much attention to uh, the details of uh, uh, management structure and processes. Um, he was pretty averse to personal conflict and, and confrontation. Uh, and so when his staff would be squabbling with each other or leaking or undermining or backbiting. He, you know, he didn't want to confront them on it. He was very uncomfortable with that. And so in the course of research in the book, I interviewed quite a few old, old Reagan hands, which are you know, really fun and interesting interviews, but a consistent theme that would come out in those interviews is um, just about everyone who worked for Reagan loved Reagan and they often hated each other. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it was just a very you know, fractious and divided administration. These are, you know, for the most part, very capable, smart, experienced, strong-willed people, but uh, they often had different views on the directions they thought policy should go. And um, Reagan would uh, was often averse to stepping in and uh, decide, you know, making making clear decisions and ending those different feuds and, and, and differences. And um, uh, and where this you know, really came to the fore was something like the Iran-Contra scandal, which is, as you know, it's a very complicated, bizarre scandal. But, you know, the, the yeah, basic Byzantine, of it, but yeah. yeah, yeah. But just, you know, for readers who may not or listeners who may not be familiar, just a very quick summary is um, uh, Iranian sponsored terrorist groups had taken several American citizens hostage in uh, Lebanon. And Reagan was trying to get those hostages freed. And as part of that, he agreed to sell arms or trade arms to the Iranians in hopes that they would then free the American hostages. And this was in uh, kind of a bad policy idea, but also in uh, violation of, of US, U.S. law at the time. And it didn't really even work. Uh, a couple hostages got freed, but then the terrorists just grabbed a couple of others. So that's the Iran part of the scandal. The second and Reagan had had authorized that. I think that's very clear. It was a terrible decision on his part, even if his motives were pure. You know, he's not getting rich off this. He's not getting any money. He just wants the hostage freed. The contra part of it comes that separately, uh, the Reagan administration was trying to provide funding and weaponry to the Contras, who are an anti-communist force fighting in Nicaragua against the communist Sandinista government. And Congress, uh, the Democratic-controlled Congress, had recently, uh, or at least the Democrat uh, uh, House, had um, uh, had cut off U.S. funding for the Contras and said no more U.S. money going to the Contras. And a couple of rogue White House staff uh, then, without telling Reagan, take the money from the Iran uh, arms sales and divert it and start funding the Contras. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, convoluted scandal. But anyway, once it all breaks out, uh, Reagan's approval ratings uh, plummet. I think it's it's like the fastest and steepest decline in presidential approval rating in, in history. A lot of American people are losing faith in him. Congress opens multiple uh, investigations. Reagan initially kind of fumbles and lies about what he'd been doing um, and then it takes another month or two before he finally comes clean. So it's a really low point in his presidency. Um, no, I personally don't think he should have been impeached for it. I think that would have been taking that too far, especially once he did come clean, uh, you know, get rid of the people who'd been doing this, admit his, his part in it uh, and, and and start start afresh. Um, uh, but uh, he certainly rightly deserved a lot of the uh, the criticism <clears throat> and the diminished approval ratings and the opposition to that. Uh, and so it's a real, real low point in his presidency, some of it stemming from him being a lousy manager. Yeah. So a couple more questions. Uh, one of the things uh, not to focus solely on uh, the, the Soviet Cold War angle of the book, which is you know a big chunk of the book, but there's a lot more to it. So um, how much credit should Reagan get for um, – furthering the expansion of democracy in uh in asia in south and central america and elsewhere how, how much how much credit does he deserve for uh the sort of flowering of democracy uh across the world in in the late 90s and uh, uh early or excuse me the late 80s and early early 90s yeah, I think you should get some significant credit for this. I try to make a case for that in, in the book. And this is, 
a underappreciated part of his broader grand strategy, which is you know not just to confront and weaken and delegitimize Soviet communism, but also to show the positive alternative of the values and virtues of the free world, uh, how people living in democracies and market economies are are healthier and happier and and more and more prosperous and 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 yet when Reagan took office, he inherited something of a challenge there, which is that outside of Western Europe and North America and, say, Japan, uh, there really weren't very many other democracies in the world. I mean, the main options for government in the world at the time outside those regions was either a communist dictatorship or, or a military dictatorship. And um, and this included a number of America's allies who were anti-communist, but otherwise were military dictatorships, South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines, <clears throat> Indonesia, Chile, Argentina, Brazil. I could, I could go through, but a significant numbers of, of Latin America and Asia. And, and so Reagan has the challenge of how does he uh, keep strong, close security ties with those allies, but also... Uh, nudge them towards democracy because he doesn't like the way the a number of those military governments are brutalizing their own people. You know, they may not have been as bad as communism, but they're not, not so good either. Um, and, uh, and this is where he does benefit from, uh, growing numbers of ordinary citizens and religious leaders in those different countries wanting democracy. And so you've got some of these grassroots indigenous movements for democracy in many of those countries that I, that I mentioned earlier, but many of them, they still wanted and welcomed support from the United States for their efforts to to bring about democracy in their own countries, because they knew if the United States continued providing strong backing to their military dictatorship, you know, they might not be able to transition to democracy. And so that's where Reagan and his Secretary of State George Shultz and some other key officials in the administration make some really key decisions in, you know, 84, 85, 86, 87 to quietly tell a number of these military dictators, okay, bud, your time is up, right? It's time to step aside and allow a peaceful transition to democracy in your country. And you need to know the United States is a friend of your country and you are an important ally to us. But our friendship is with your whole country and your, and your people, not just you, the military dictator. And that plays a key role in a number of those countries having those peaceful uh, transitions to democracy. So that's another underappreciated but very important part of the Reagan legacy. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. All right. Real quick, uh, before we have to go, um, who did more to end the Cold War, uh, Reagan or Gorbachev? I mean, I know Gorbachev got the Nobel Peace Prize for it, but uh, who really deserves the credit? Yes. So, I, you know, I first have to say both Reagan and Gorbachev are essential. And, he, and each of them would have said that. Reagan would, would have said we couldn't have done this without Gorbachev. Gorbachev would say we couldn't do this without Reagan. So they're in that sense, they're an important partnership. But I won't dodge your question. I think when it comes to weighing it in the balance, I give Reagan more credit. And I'll probably won't surprise your listeners, but hear me out. Let me let me tell you why. Um <laughs> Reagan takes office in January of 81. Gorbachev does not take office until March of 85, four years and two months later. Reagan is very clear in his first year as president, let alone the next few years, that part of his strategy of pressuring the Soviet system is not just to weaken it, it's to pressure it to produce a reformist leader. And so that's why I titled that chapter in my book, Waiting for Gorbachev, about when Gorbachev finally comes to power, is Reagan had been pressuring that system for the previous four years to produce a more reformist leader, somebody he could negotiate with. And it could be a partner with him for uh, for peace and for reducing the threat of nuclear war and nuclear arsenals. And so uh, Gorbachev becomes an essential partner. You know, Gorbachev is a very courageous leader in a lot of ways. And I try to give him credit where credit is due there. But because of uh, Reagan's earlier vision in looking for a reformist Soviet leader and even trying to pressure the system to produce one, you know, I'm not saying Reagan dictates the Soviets, thou shalt select Gorbachev. There's complicated factors that go into why Gorbachev becomes the leader. But but I, I give Reagan a little more credit there for uh, looking for a leader like that and then embracing him when he came along. All right, great. Okay, uh, well, I know you got to split, so uh, one last question and sort of the exit question I ask everybody that comes on the, on the podcast, and that is, um, you know, what would you like the audience to get out of this book, or, uh, you know, what's the one thing you'd want a reader to take away from, from having read it? Yeah, I, I think the, the one thing there, the, the big thing will just be 
appreciating Reagan's courage and vision in being willing to move past all the conventional wisdom and the, the strategic framework he inherits in the Cold War and being able to envision a world beyond the Cold War. Uh, and and not just you know the end of the Cold War, but the end of the Cold War on favorable terms for the United States and, and the free world. I mean, that's that's I think his single most important legacy, and it was not inevitable. Uh, and it, it, I think it should appear to us all the more notable uh, in hindsight and the further we get from it. All righty, very nice. Okay, so before we go, um, anything else you want to plug? Anything, uh, anything you want to call attention to? Uh, social media or anything like that, or appearances or something people out there should know about? Uh, you know, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm not really much on social media myself. <laughs> yeah, me I, I hope <laughs> listeners will um, will will read the book. You know, it's called The Peacemaker. I, yeah. I'm told by others it's a pretty good read. Uh, my mother read it and liked it. So, uh, <laughs> and she's extremely objective. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, and I, I, I welcome any feedback. Yeah. No, yeah. It's a uh, fantastic, fantastic book. Um, uh, one of the best books on Ronald Reagan ever written, in my opinion, and easily uh, the best book on Reagan's um, foreign policy ever written. I don't, I don't even think it's close. Uh, so it'll probably be the uh, the standard bearer for um, for probably a while. I would I would think. I think he got a good little run on this one uh, as being the uh, uh, king of the hill. But um, yeah, it's a fantastic, fantastic book. Again, the name of the book is The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and the World on the Brink, and the author, Dr. William Imaden. And uh, Dr. Imaden, thank you so, so much again for coming on the podcast and talking about the book with me. And thank you very much for, you know, actually taking the time, all the uh, blood, sweat, and tears uh, in going into writing the book so that uh, myself and everybody else out there could could enjoy it. Uh, I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Oh, thank you very much. And again, if you like this podcast, uh, please consider leaving us a five-star review and sharing with your friends. And if you have any uh, questions or comments or anything like that uh, about the podcast, you can reach out to me at uh, tbenson at heartland.org. That's T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. And for more information about the Heartland Institute, you can just go to heartland.org. And uh, speaking of social media, which, uh, again, as I just mentioned, not a big fan of, but we do have <laughs> we do have a uh, Twitter account for the for the podcast. So um, you can also reach out to us there if you have any questions, comments or anything like that. You know, make sure you give us a follow and uh, send us a DM you want if, if you want or anything like that. Um, our Twitter handle is at illbooks at I-L-L books. So make sure you check that out. And that's pretty much it. So uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you guys next time. Take care. Love you, Robbie. Love you, Mom. Bye-bye.